This is Glenn Hallstrom, creator of The Lumpers, and you're listening to the Roll for Initiative podcast. Roll for Initiative. Welcome back to the Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number 33. Nice cold winter days coming along finally, and uh, we're coming off a nice weekend, and uh, we're back um, for a nice long show about awesomeness and uh, things to come, and, and we're just coming off a big event, Jason Con, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. <laughs> yes, tell us of Jason Con, Jason. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Uh, you, everyone's got to sit in suspense while we wait about Jason Con. Oh, yeah. So, uh, website. Everyone's going to be. Everyone has been going to the RFI podcast.com website, and the forums have exploded. Nice. Yeah. Cool. We've been. Uh, I mean, the forums have been getting really big. Our Facebook site has uh, exploded as well. I noticed we went over six hundred fans. Yeah, on Facebook over six hundred. And I noticed we are definitely international as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just dropped a line to one guy who was, uh, I thought he was from Thailand, but he was in Sydney. But, I mean, he's from Thailand because his whole page is in Thai. So I'm really hoping that there's, like, <clears throat> Thai AD&D players that are into this because Sweet. that would be cool. So, and actually, I know if you think you're from really far away, let us know. We want to see how far away people are. And I know we're really big in Scandinavia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Apparently. That's so, cool. The Vikings dig us. Oh, yeah, and we dig the Vikings, so. Thanks. Oh, yeah, I noticed we, we went surfers and everything. <laughs> we went from four hundred something, and the next I came to Facebook the next night, and it was like over five hundred in a matter of like half a day. Yeah, wow. it's been shooting up, so that's really good. What have you been doing, Jason? You've been paying people to join the site, or what? <laughs> nah, we're just telling people about it. I think it was probably Jason Con that got them all excited. They're getting free stuff. Speaking you know? about that, what happened to Jason Con? Tell us about it, Jason. Come on. All right, so yeah, tell, a couple tell, of tell weeks us. ago. I mean, I really planned it last minute, but I was trying to think of what I was going to do for my birthday. So uh, I figured, why not throw a gaming convention? And uh, it turns out that, yeah, it worked. So um, we had this thing yesterday called JasonCon, and I uh, put together a bunch of stuff. Like, we actually had badges and everything for it. And, I mean, you know, it wasn't really a convention. It's not like there was 50 or 100 people or anything. I basically just told some people who I knew in New York, and I was like, hey, you know, let's see how many games we can play in an afternoon. <laughs> so uh, we did. Yeah, I think we had something like, I don't know, 16, 17 people probably that showed up. And, uh, gosh, let me see. Did you guys see the pictures that I put up? Yeah. What do you think? Wow. Love them. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Like the, awesome. I like, I like the artwork that your wife did. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, she did that's a fantastic a future project that we'll talk about. Yes, but, she did uh, a fantastic job. Yeah, thanks. Um, Are we going to publish we, those on the website so people can see them? These oh, pictures? yeah, yeah. I'm going to put these up on the website. They're on Flickr now, so I'll just embed them. But uh, before I say anything else, I have to really point out uh, – so Tavis Allison is uh, one of the listeners to the show – and he got a hold of me a few days ago and said, hey, I'm going to come down to JasonCon. So I was like, that's cool. Meet some new people. 
And the next thing you know, he just completely transformed it, like brought it up a whole extra level. He was he got the whole thing kicked off with a big Tower of Gygax session. So we set up a big U-shaped table and had everybody all gathered around. And it was just, you know, classic Tower of Gygax moments of, of the players coming in, getting killed, really fast turnover. Uh, so much fun. And, uh, you know, so we basically we had four DMs for the convention. We had myself, Tavis. Uh, Andrew came down. Uh, he's uh, from my uh, in-person game here. And then uh, Gabe, who is uh, the DM in my fourth edition game, he came down and ran some games as well. And uh, it was just you know, it was a huge um, success, I guess. Let me try to see if I can find the list of games. Uh, I don't know. Any, do you guys any questions on any of the pictures? Well, it I looks guess? like he had Space Hulk going. Yeah, that looked kind of cool, Space Hulk. Space Hulk is really fun, yeah. Tell me, it's, how uh, does that work? Well, it's basically a, uh, a a sort of light, like a skirmish type game, and it's set in the Warhammer universe, the 40k universe. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got, in the version of Space Hulk that he has, you've got Space Marines and you've got uh, Gene Stealers, and the Gene Stealers just swarming all over. It's kind of like the movie Aliens, and uh, the Space Marines are just trying to uh, you know hold them off, basically. And it's tough, but it's really fast-paced and really fun. Now, I see in the pictures you got, yeah, obviously AD&D. Mm-hmm. Is that you standing behind a Gamma World screen? Uh, top Secret. We had one uh, Top Secret game that I was running, and I've never been the administrator for a Top Secret game before, so I don't know how well I did. I mean, they all seem to have fun, so that's cool. Uh, but we were running a, a, a the, the little mini adventure that actually comes with the administrator's module, where you've got to save the president. So I switched it up a little bit, made it President Reagan, all that kind of stuff. Um, let's see. So what did we play? We had uh, Settlers of Catan. We had Top Secret, Space Hulk, like you saw. Um, Blood Bowl was going on. Had some Blood Bowl matches. Uh, had Tower of Gygax, of course. Had the. Uh, uh, another uh, a D and D three point five game that Andrew ran of something called Pirates of Seawall. I didn't play in it, but it looked really fun. It looked like they were having a good time with that. Cool. Uh, gosh, what else? I've got the sign up here. Um, do, 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 do. Oh, BattleTech, of course. You know, we had finished off the night with BattleTech. Oh. And, uh, and uh, then let's see. Oh, Gamma World. We never got to Gamma World or Gangbusters because uh, just stuff like that happens. But. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out Tavis is part of this group here in New York called New York Redbox, which I had, I didn't hadn't, hadn't heard of these guys before. They're really cool. They're just I think their tagline is where it's 1980 for another 2d6 turns. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. They play so all the Thursday, old the old games, right? Yeah. So Thursday, I'm gonna go over and uh, meet those guys and play some Gamma World with them, and I can't wait. Whoa! Wait a bit. You had like prizes and everything oh yeah yeah we were keeping points on the whole way through so if you go like on the on the end there you can see all the prize winners <laughs> yeah that's that's so cool yeah it's not it, a con if you don't win something right i know you had like prizes and all different wow Man. yeah the grand prize was a uh, a box set of axis and allies oh, wow. um and nice. then uh Runners Up had uh, a really nice wooden dice tray, a Starfist game from Steve Jackson game. Ooh, Starfist, cool. Oh, you've played it? I I've heard lots of good stuff about it. 
Yeah, I, I've been trying to get somebody to play it, so I was kind of glad that Gabe won that because I'm like, yeah, now we can play that. Uh, and then, you know, other stuff like little Plush Cthulhu, Deck of Many Things, you know. Oh, ducks. yay, Plush Cthulhu. So, yeah, it was, it was a really, really, it was a huge blast. I mean, everybody who came out uh, just totally made this the best birthday ever. It was it was just, wow. you know, um, great DMs. Everybody, you know, kicked in and helped out, and uh, it, was, it was just a ton of fun, so... Thanks to everybody who came to JasonCon. <laughs> well, will there be a JasonCon 2011? Probably not, because I think uh, in 2011 it'll probably be Low Tech Con around the same time. So we'll just we'll have like a JasonCon game or something at Low Tech Con. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it was you good, it was good maybe practice. like a special invite only thing. Exactly. Yeah, we'll have something like that. Or maybe you can like win tickets to have lunch with Jason. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's not much of a prize. <laughs> anyway, uh, awesome. I'm glad we had a good time. Glad you had a fun birthday. Did you get a lot of uh, gifts and everything, too, as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Especially the best of all was that uh, Hanai made a shirt for me that I had no idea she was making a Jason Con shirt. So <laughs> in one of the pictures, you can see the back of it where she did this pixel art of a D20 and put Dungeon Master across the back. Nice. Yeah, so it was really cool stuff. Cool. Awesome. All right, cool. So we know what Jason did this weekend. <laughs> mm, yes. Nick, Nick, what did you do? Well, we had our monthly game session uh, yesterday, and it was a blast. We just uh, just barrels of laughs the whole time. Uh, gosh, let's see. Went up against a red dragon. Ooh. And, well, we had someone did a called shot to the eye. <sighs> oh. And critted it. How do you handle a called shot? Because I never do that. I'd love to know well, how. Well, we're playing Hackmaster, so there's a whole. Okay, how does game. Hackmaster handle a called shot? Uh, generally, it, depending on the size of the creature and what, it, it generally depends on the size of the creature. And there's a negative to hit. Yeah. So, like a called sure. shot to a high to like a garg to the eye for a gargantuan creature is like a negative ten oh, or yeah. a negative eleven to hit. But they did. But it, it, it gets better. He critted. Jeez, that's amazing. If you do a cold shot, uh, if and you roll a nineteen natural nineteen or natural twenty, it's a crit. So <laughs> oh, he rolled a nineteen that. right there on the die, critted the thing in the eye, and um, knocked it unconscious. So we're like, "Yep, let's crit a girl on this puppy." It wasn't like it wasn't a very old dragon. It was like a young adult. You never. Still. You've never used crit rules, Jason, like that, or called shot rules. I mean, not called shot, not in AD and D, just because I had never stopped to kind of figure out a good way to do it. So I've always just said, you know what, everything's happening too fast and furious yeah. for you to do that, and nobody seems to mind. People don't bring it up a lot, so. Yeah. Well, well I, yeah, there's like a real quick chart I can maybe show you sometime. It's yeah, send it over if it's a good yeah. one. Let's put it up on the side. Yeah, it's a really good chart. You know, it's off the uh, one of the screens there, so. Uh, the game, but uh, yeah, it was great. This hilarity ensued last night. Lots of just too funny stuff. Stuff I can't mention on the podcast because <laughs> I want to keep this at least. PG. Well, why don't you go uh, put up a campaign journal on Epic Words and let us well, all find you know out what? About That's funny you mentioned that because um, this is the game I'm playing in, but uh, we're going to be starting the other campaign probably next month. Next month we're going to do our. Uh, we're going to have an actual role session of where we're rolling up the characters. 
So we're going to spend a couple hours prior to Jeff's game, which is the one I'm playing in right now. We're going to roll up characters for this new campaign for that I'm going to run. Excellent. So, nice. so yeah, and once we start with basically day one of the character generation, I'm going to put that up there at uh, at the website on um, – Oh gosh, why am I why am I brain farting here? Uh, up at um, rfipodcast.com. There and well, not just ours, but I'm talking about um, we just had him on the show. Dead Game about, Society. No, not Dead Game Society, but uh, Epic Words. Epic Words. Thank you. <laughs> wow, I just said it. Yeah, I know. Really. I know. I'm like <laughs> I, I'm totally fried today because I didn't go home till three o'clock in the morning. Oh, and then okay, that's out, fair. Then I went. Then I went out today with the kids. We went to, you know, being fall. Got to be out there and doing the whole, you know, corn maze and yeah. you, know, you go out. You go out to the, you know, they all the the apple farms around. Yeah, the corn mazes are easy ever since I got a GPS. <laughs> yeah, I wish I brought one. We were out there for two flipping hours, and my <laughs> wife can't, like, find anything. She's going by the map, and I'm saying to her, she got us out of there. I'm like, when if you ever play AD&D, you're the thief. Done. <laughs> Done. Excellent. You're the thief. Excellent. She's like, okay, I nice. might. That sounds kind of cool, so I might almost talk her into it. <laughs> so, yeah, that was on my weekend. So, yeah. Excellent. And, what about you, uh, Vince? What about you? Actually, in my game, we were actually doing something non AD and D. Blasphemy! Dun, What'd you guys do? We were playing. Dun. We were playing Vampire Second Edition. This oh, okay. I don't even know what that is. Vampire Masquerade. Yeah, Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, like running around outside with it? No, 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 not not the LARP. Uh, the, oh, okay. The actual. I'm woefully uninformed. I just assumed it was always a LARP. No, it's not as old. No. no. Okay. Oh, one other thing. We got one saying that we got out of our group last night. So yeah. I made it up. Shish cobalts. Shish cobalts. <laughs> yes. Yes, right. shish cobalts. And... Some couple of cobalts got impaled last night. So someone said, oh, look, shish cobalts. That's good. I need, I need, I need more names like that. Keep, keep telling me names like that because I'm working on an idea for a gaming blog right now, and I need to come up with some good names. So it's going to end Not... up on a T-shirt from somebody in our group. Excellent. <laughs> anyway, so Nick, speaking about good words and everything, don't you have some stars to give us this week? Yeah, yes, some I do. Pimpin'. Off of iTunes, we got three more five-star reviews. And our first star is from Add Me to Clan. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> nice name, Add Me to Clan. Okay. Sure. And he gives us, or he or she, gives us a five-star review and says, nice job, three exclamation points. Thank and, you. Uh, yes. I said thank what? you. <laughs> oh, yes. And, yes, thank you very much, Add Me to Clan. And... Um, he or she says, these guys do a great job of covering all aspects of old school gaming. Keep up the good work. So thank you so much. Uh, add me to clan. And then we got uh, another one, five stars again, from Smokestack Jones. Hey, that's the, and he says, how I roll. <laughs> and uh, Smokestack Jones says, this is an addictive podcast for an old gamer like me. I love listening to the banter between those three, and the current episode is great. We need these guys to stay put and keep churning them out like sausages. 
you know, the good kind, like brats uh, or thuringer, not uh, the bad kind, like blood saga, sausage or haggis. I don't so, know. If we he said be... that. That's what those are his words. Yeah. Yes. That's hilarious. I don't know. Yeah. So smokestack Jones, I'm with you, man. I've had haggis. It stinks. So. <laughs> well, now that, that's gonna get some. That's gonna get some negative feedback right away, and I'm gonna be the first. That's good stuff. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> All right, okay. It's for all our Scottish listeners. Okay, that's okay. It's cool. I'm just partial to brats. I'm in Northeast Ohio. It's a thing. Yeah. Um, and our last one we got in is from RS Bad, five stars again. It says wonderful podcast. And he says, this is a wonderful podcast for all the people that love old school gaming. Plus, those that play the new editions to see where the game came from and how it should be played. The creature feature is the best part of the episodes. Peachy Keen. <laughs> peachy peachy keen. keen. I like that. Yeah, Peachy Keen. <laughs> so thanks, RS Bad. Thank so. you, uh, everyone, for their five stars. Uh, rate us on iTunes, whatever stars you want, and we'll read it. As yeah, you've heard well, in the past, so yeah, one star, three star, five star. In fact, we Jason, even have a, Jason encourages a less than five stars sometimes. Uh, yes, be honest. <laughs> just be honest. Yes, yes be, honest. be honest. Critique just, us. Just give us an honest five stars. Yeah, and give us good <laughs> feedback. Don't just say this stinks and leave that. <laughs> I hate that Nick guy. No, <laughs> yeah, he makes up too many funny voices. I don't understand what's going on. Is a matter of effect. <laughs> and uh, last thing on the uh, announcement news, uh, RFI podcast staff will be going to Icons in April 2011, which is a big sci-fi gaming event in New York. So uh, if you want to check out that website, icons.com, I believe it is, uh, we'll be there on a panel. We'll be doing a live broadcasting from there. How's that spelled for anybody that's listening? I, the letter I, and then cons. I believe it was oh, so C O N S. Yeah, I C O N S. So like, just making sure it wasn't a K. Yeah, cool. I think there might be a hyphen when you search for it. it might be I hyphen con dot com. All right. Well, we'll put it up on the uh, we'll put it up on the site. We'll definitely yeah yep. have a link to yeah. that where people can find it. Definitely, and I think that's going to end the introduction. We'll head into uh, sage advice. Sage advice. Welcome to Sage Advice for this week. And uh, to get us started, I think we've got some voicemails that came in. Uh, is that right, Vince? Oh, yeah. We got a whole bunch of... Oh, and just for correction, it is iconsf.org. Madison. Oh, iconsf.org. One yeah. S. Yeah. S. So I-C-O-N-S-F. Is that uh, like icon science fiction, I guess? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, we also have a... it's called Icon, and so the, it's iconsf.org. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Are we settled on that now? Good looking site. Yeah, isn't it? All right. All right. So we have our first voicemail is coming in from. Uh, let me pull it up here for a sec. Uh, I believe it's GM Chris from the Order sixty six podcast, and uh, all right, I believe it is. Oh, oh I hope it's. I hope it's him. We need some more back and forth. Yeah. All right, <laughs> let's see who it is. All right. Here we go. Hey guys, GM Chris here. Actually, I have a question for you. Uh, so my favorite part of Roll for Initiative is Creature Feature. I just I love it. I, I love what you guys do with it. First of all, it's creative and fantastic. But um, it takes me back, man, hearing about all these uh, first edition monsters. I don't think anything brings me back to that point of of remembrance more. It's, it's great. But I want to know from each one of you, what is your favorite 
first edition monster. And why? That's all. Peace, love, and good game. Okay. A simple question that can have a very complex answer. <laughs> yeah, right? I oh, like it. Oh, boy. That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, Vince? I, I got to say, my favorite first edition monsters were always the devils. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think the reason why is because it leaves you so much room for imagination, you know, depending how you're going to set your world up. The idea of these... Uh, you know these these extra planar creatures that are um, you know finding their way in, in, into your realm. Uh, it, it really makes you it, rather than just some monsters that are you know just kind of there and you can run into them over and over again. In a lot of cases, you've got unique devils or you have you know a few of them that can come in and it can really shape the whole flavor of how the campaign is going. Uh, if you want to be driving it towards a more uh, medieval themed kind of thing, you can start having these great. Uh, these great enmities between between devils and some of the clerics that are in it, or maybe you want to go in a more humorous kind of way, like you're playing more of a Robert Asprin kind of myth adventures kind of thing, and you can you mess with what the devils really are. Uh, I just I just think that they're they're fascinating. They've got tons of powers. They they are uh, incredible. Some of them are incredibly intelligent. Uh, they've got the psionics if you're playing that way. Um, yeah, yeah. I think when when I think of you know, since they're all monsters, any creature you go up against, I think that's kind of where I would go. Okay. What about you, uh, Vince? What do you? What's like your favorite? If I'm going for the low end, I usually like going with orcs. But if I'm going mm. for more of a, a role play aspect or a higher end, I'm going for dragons. I love using my dragons, especially mm. them mm. misused dragons such as blue or black. Yeah. That people don't often use. I like using those dragons, boy. Mm. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, hear him salivating on the other end here. Yeah. Dragons. Ah. Dragons. Uh, gosh, you know, I guess I would have to, you know, split up like you did, like a low-end and high-end creatures. I think on the low-end, my favorite has to be gnolls. Gnolls? Because, yeah, gnolls. Because... <laughs> They, as far as like all the humanoid races, they're like I think they're probably like the least played, you know. Yeah. And I like using them along with Flynn's and kind of making all whole interesting society around them. But as far as like mid to high level, I think I'd have to go with Jason and the demons and the devils are a big hit for me too for everything that you said. You know, they could really throw players for a loop. They, you know, and they're, yeah, they're just so I, versatile. Everything you could do with them. Yeah, and I like any monster that that gathers other monsters around it as you know henchmen and yeah, followers or whatever like that. You know, I guess that's absolutely. why a mind flare is really fun. You know, I, was just I, I didn't want that. to say a mind flare because you know we just did it for a creature feature, <laughs> but they're really fun to play. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean. Just from that ecology article, that gives you so many ideas just for that one particular monster. I, I was thinking of Mind Flayers, too. Beholders, you could do the same thing with. You know, yeah, they're no, really cool. Beholders, not really my favorite, though. I, yeah. And I think it's because it's just kind think of... think they've been uh, overplayed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, I, yeah. And, and everybody knows what they're up against when they see one. Yeah, that's true. You know? So that kind of takes a little bit of out of there. Although, you know... <sighs> We can go on forever about this, but some of my other favorite <laughs> monsters are the ones that that drop down on you and that surprise you, catch you unawares. Oh, like you know, trappers and, and, and uh, trappers, um, lurk, 
right where I was going next, lurkers above, any of like the ooze or the jelly or the slime. Uh, the, uh What are the ones that oh, we just, my players just came up with camp faults. Oh, yeah. yeah. are okay. amazingly fun. Carrying and of course, crawlers. And you know what? I'm going to take back everything I just said. I'm going to come up with a new one. This is <laughs> going to be my favorite. I'm going to stick to it. The Mimic. All right. Okay. Okay. Mimic. All right. Mimic. Uh, Mimic. Mimic. Because <laughs> it just, oh, just the look on players' faces every time they encounter a Mimic because they're all excited about the great thing they just found, and then it attacks. There's yeah. nothing better. <laughs> all right. Cool. Uh, well, thanks, Chris, for that awesome question and we have some yeah. some varied answers here and we could probably go on forever and ever but uh you know you know how it is doing a podcast we can't do that <laughs> and i also just want to take a second to congratulate chris on his new game that came out he published uh, he took the saga edition rules mm-hmm. for, and he made oh. his own fantasy uh realm out of it so wow yeah, really? yeah. it was in Where can you get it uh it should be released very shortly he was just talking about it on the recent order of 66 podcasts Actually, as of tonight's recording, so I think in the next month he said it's going to be released. I'm not positive on that, but I can't wait to see how it looks. So, yeah, me too. Congratulations, Chris, from one dead game to another. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next one comes from Julie Halverson. So oh. we'll, we'll play that one. Hold hey, on. Julie. Hey, this is Julie from 19 Nocturne Boulevard. I uh, wanted to say for Thaco, the uh, it, I. The last group I played with, and it probably was a later edition, I don't even remember, frankly. It was a pretty loose game, but what the purpose of Thacko was within the confines of that game was, it was a shorthand, so the GM didn't have to, you know, go, well, what have you got to hit armor class 5? What have you got to hit armor class, you know, whatever. She'd just say, what's your Thacko? And it was up to us to keep track for what it would be for each of our weapons or whatever else, or our bonuses that we got or didn't get. You know, so, you know, if I, she said, what's your Thacko? And you're like, well, I'm hitting with my broadsword, so it's a blah, blah, blah. You know, or, you know, all the different, we had a, it was a fairly high-powered magic campaign. So there was a lot of variation depending on who was wearing whose underwear on what day. But, um, yeah, it was a munchkin campaign. It was totally but, <laughs> <laughs> but But that way, she didn't tell us, give us any indication of what armor class we were up against. She just would... Fight, you know, she'd just double check that as it came up, what we were fighting with. So, um, it, it, it served a, the opposite purpose of what your concern was, which was, you know, letting people know too much. In fact, it let us know little. We knew what we could do, but we didn't know what anything else could. Anyway, I wanted to also talk about convention games because you were bringing that up. Oh, well, before I do that, though, um, <laughs> more on fighting. Uh, what I do, and now, as I said when I was on the show, and I hope to be on the show again sometime, hint, 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 um, I, I, I haven't run a lot of, of D&D, but a lot of GMing stuff carries over, no matter what. When I'm pl- running games, I, one reason I like to run less familiar games is that people can't debate me on the rules or the monsters or blah, 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 whatever. But um, they, uh, the... One of the things I like to do is if I'm doing, if we're doing rule to hit, et cetera, et cetera, rather than tell them you hit, you didn't hit, especially in the case of a near miss where it could be, oh, I'm hitting on a 15, but I'm not hitting on, I'm not hitting on a 15, but I'm hitting on a 17, you know, like was said, I, I'll describe it instead. And this is, and that way they're not real sure. It's like, oh, oh, you hit, but your, your sword glances right off. You're not sure if you did any damage, you know, or, uh, 
I, you, you see the bullet go into its skin, but you're, you, you, it just seems to absorb it. You know, and so they don't know if they're doing damage. They don't know. Sometimes I'll even have them roll damage dice and not actually count it just so that it's really blurry where it is. You know, or, you know, I'll just say, okay, if they roll more than blonde damage dice, then maybe they, they did a little bit of glancing damage because they hit the wall behind it and, you know, stone chips smacked it in the back of the head. You know, I, I'm very, very loose that way because for me, it's really all in the storytelling. Okay. On to convention games. <laughs> I haven't actually got all the way through the episode. I might have to send you another another recording after that. But um, I, 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 voicemail sucks. But <laughs> anyway, um, I've, I've done a lot of convention games. And I'll tell you, unless you're demoing the system, unless you're demoing the system for rolling characters, never, ever, ever have people roll characters on site. Now, if you're specifically demoing the system, that's a whole different ballgame. But... There is way too much time involved with that. If you've got a time slot that's only, you know, X amount of time, then you don't want to spend half of it passing the books around so everybody can make characters. Um, hand around the characters. One thing that I would also suggest, especially, is assume that you're going to have at least one player who doesn't know the game system. There are always people at conventions who want to learn a new game system. And no matter how ubiquitous you think D&D is, especially if you're dealing with an older rule system than the one commonly in parlance at the moment, you assume that you're going to have somebody who doesn't know and make sure that you've got stuff handy for them. Um, something that tells them, that explains what their abilities are, something you know, so that they're not always going, well, what was dexterity again? You know, just a cheat sheet, something they can refer to, to so that they can look it up and they don't take time away from the group, but they don't have to have the books. You know, something where it's just like, here's all the things you can do. And that's, you know, also when you do hand things around, find out who is experienced and who isn't, and don't give the inexperienced character inexperienced player, <laughs> the, the more difficult characters. Don't give the inexperienced player the paladin. Don't give the inexperienced player the, the magic user who's got spells that they have to understand how to use. I mean, give the inexperienced player the rogue, thief, whatever. I mean, depending on your game system. And I play way too many game systems. See, that's one of the advantages I have with playing modern games is, like, everyone can play a firefighter. Nobody has to know what kind of skills a firefighter is going to have. Every, nobody has to have to know what kind of skills a photographer is going to have. It's like, okay, you got a camera. Duh, you know how to take pictures. Um, <laughs> so, so it's, it's, but, but, you know, for any game where you're going to have magic, any game, just make up a cheat sheet that has the descriptions of all the wizard spells right there so that they don't have to look up everything every time they want to see how it works. Um, even for an experienced player, it's still a good idea to have that on hand. Um, cause you want to minimize book passing. You want to minimize book time in a convention game. Also, one reason to keep in the time slot rather than plan a story that runs over is that if most conventions are divided up by time slot, depending on the convention, it's one hour, two hour, four hour is the ones I've usually come across. And if you run over, then you're going to lose players cause they're going to have booked in another game for the next time slot. So you don't want to keep them from going to the game that they have scheduled to go to next. It's better to wind up early. When you're planning something, especially for a combat-heavy scenario, combat-heavy um, system, you want to keep the combat to, like, one. 
you want to have one big combat at the end, keep an eye on your clock and make sure you wrap up the combat. Whether it would technically wrap up because of the die rolling or not, wrap it up satisfactorily and on time. Give them time to loot. That's the happy part. But make sure that they've got time to finish that fight before they have to leave. Okay, bye-bye. All right, cool. Thanks, Julie, for that uh, nice segment you sent in about your opinions and your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> you all right, Nick? Yeah, I'm fine. She's great. <laughs> I love Julie. She's awesome. <laughs> I, well, you know, she she likes to say what's on her mind. So I mean, I she, know. <laughs> she gave yes, us what Julie. She... We'll have you back on the show. I swear it. <laughs> Right. No, that was great stuff. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, and she's just like bubbling over with personality. What are you going to do? You know, she's great. Okay, so we'll move on to our next one. Uh, this is from uh, Glenn. He sent in an uh, email asking us a question, and it's directed towards Jason. Okay. So here you go. Hi, DM Vince, DM Jason, and DM Nick. This is Glenn Hallstrom, a.k.a. Smokestack Jones. And I was wondering, I was looking through my big box of Judges Guild supplements, which I collect, Ooh. and I was wondering if you could talk about third-party modules and supplements for the first edition game. Um, I know Jason's a big Roll Aids fan, and uh, I thought it'd be interesting to hear about what's out there, <clears throat> a little bit about these companies, um, how you use them, if you use them in your games... I know, Vince, you don't, but it might be an interesting topic anyway. And I'd really like to hear more about what you have to say about it. Thanks. Love the show, and I'll keep listening. Cool. Thanks, Glenn. Wow. All right. So yeah. uh, that's a, that's actually a good you know topic for a segment sometime in the future, but mm-hmm. uh, not too bad. As these, some of my stuff I haven't brought home from the con <laughs> yet but i happen to have a couple in front of me right now one that i just bought at gen con and i haven't actually taken out of the the original wrapping yet i'm not sure when i'm going to do that but it's a roll aids one called sword thrust which just mm-hmm. looked really impressive uh and you know roll aids there's a lot of stuff that they have done over the years i think they're less uh no- notorious no that's not the right word but they're less uh People kind of talk about them less than they talk about Judges Guild, but I think they're probably uh, pretty close up there in terms of just overall love that people have for the stuff they do and the quality of what it is they put out. Didn't Rollades get sued or try to – didn't TSR try to sue Rollades for uh, copyright infringement at one point? I don't know. I can yeah, see that. I, I think so. Might have been back in the day. I remember hearing something about that. Yeah, and yeah, they, probably they lost. Probably from the post-1985, whenever that one person took over the thing. Um, Matt, but, Matt okay, so, so Rollades yeah. and Judges Guild, those were a couple of the big ones, you know, yeah. back in the day. But the cool thing is there's all sorts of people that are putting them, up, putting them out now. Um, Expeditious Retreat, I think, is my yes. favorite. Expeditious absolutely. Retreat Press. Excellent yeah, absolutely stuff. absolutely some of the best. Uh, and we've got, of course, one here from uh, Diecast Games. They released one recently where they actually, speaking of getting sued, they've released it with Advanced Dungeons & Dragons written right across the front. And they even had the chutzpah to put TSR1 as the number. So, uh, you know, yeah, I got that one. Yeah, so there's that. Um, uh, and there's yeah. also some really good stuff off the Dragonsfoot.org website, you know, the, mm-hmm. all, all the, those adventures that people write. So going to dragonsfoot.org is a good place. 
Well, speaking of which, there's going to be a new one in just a few weeks from our very own Todd Hughes. So we'll be sure yeah. to have him on to talk about that module when it comes out. Yeah, yeah. and we can um, – uh, there's another one, uh, Paysetter Games and Simulations. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they're putting out a lot of first edition uh, AD&D stuff, and I got a couple modules from them. They're pretty good. I'm trying to think of somebody else who does, um, I think, Brave Halfling Publishing, too. Yeah. I don't know them. Yeah, Brave Halfling Publishing. That's Sword and Wizardry. Yeah, okay. which, I, and I think their stuff, you know, you can easily convert it over to AD&D. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think, you know, these, these things are amazing. What's amazing is that people are constantly writing new ones. I don't know. Uh, what the scene, so to speak, is like for other game systems, whether we're talking about other editions or completely different games. But uh, just in my unscientific anecdotal uh, observation, it seems like old school AD&D has got the most healthy amount of uh, you know new stuff coming out all the time for it. So I'm, I'm yeah, other- I agree. It seems uh, like the, yeah. the the abundance is. Uh- advanced D&D but yeah you can always convert stuff over from if it was written for you know basic or something like that I mean oh for sure I for think sure. Yeah, most I mean, of the stuff for I mean me- people converted keep of the keep on the borderlands to use an AD&D so I mean yeah. hey well they're easy they're easily compatible yeah one mm-hmm. of the uh, one of my favorite things this is not a module it's actually a lot of people put out uh supplemental campaign material you know like cities and Mm -hmm. and, uh, things like that uh, nations continents whatever and one that i always wanted to get a copy of was judges guild city state of the world emperor and uh either you guys ever see that no can't say i heard of that one huge amazing it's it's this one uh city state that's been just fleshed out in unbelievable detail um and you know the maps are beautiful the book itself is huge it's like about 80 page book around this one city state and uh i'd wanted it for ages i saw it go up on ebay somebody in the uk had it it went for a huge amount of money i mean hundreds of dollars i think i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong maybe it wasn't that much all i know is it was so much money that i just sat there going i want this but there's no way i can bid on that and then uh Colin from Dead Game Society saw my note to that effect, and he said, you know what? I've got that. You can have it. He said, I'm going to give this to you if you promise to run it at cons in the future. You know, run it as a Dead Game Society game. So he sent it to me. It's You know what? Yeah, that's amazing. It's like in brand new condition, and so I'll be running it at GaryCon because uh, it's just amazing. So Judges Guild, I still think, is a... You know, they, they, they hold they hold the metal. I just remembered another place that you can go look. Uh, if you go to th- drive through RPG. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Com, PDFs. They actually have a subgenre under fantasy, which is old school slash classics. And they have a whole bunch of PDFs of relatively current stuff. I mean, yeah, current stuff that's done for, you know, AD&D, uh, a bunch of new modules, you name it. It's there. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of good PDFs there. Uh, so basically, it's a good place to start, I think. Basically, you could write your own module for AD&D as long as you use the D- open gaming license and you use Ascending Armor class. And you can, uh, yeah, you can design your own module. Wait a second. You, you, you have to use Ascending Armor class in order to do uh-huh. it? Yeah. 
Why is that? That's just part of the open gaming license. You have well, to, you then have to get put the yeah. OGL. Just write your stuff and don't worry about it. Just don't use any words like beholder or mind flare or whatever they've or got. Or yank or something like that. Yeah, just just take a look in the OGL. It tells you it tells you which. Uh, uh, yeah. Monsters are considered, you know, proprietary. Ooh, don't ever say this word, kind of stuff. So just avoid those. Don't use trademark logos, and just do it the way you want to do it. And you know, forget the OGL. Well, you put the you put the ascending armor class in parentheses next to the descending that we use. No way, wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I'm not gonna. If I was putting something out, I, I would not spend my time trying to make you know, Wizards of the Coast happy. That we put the right kind of armor class in so that they're trademarked. Now forget them. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, but of I course, I say this as our producer right that's now. That's a legal just, issue. I'm not going to get into, so I really don't know. Hey, if if <laughs> uh, if uh, Diecast Games is going to go around putting the words "Advanced Dungeons and Dragons" and "TSR" on the front of things, then I think I can. Well, safely say, go ahead and do your descending armor. Diecast Games had to change their module, by the way. So that oh, did they? Did we, they get sued? They didn't get sued. They got the cease and desist. That's why that that module's oh, no longer. Oh, they did. Uh, yeah, I believe so. That's oh, why it's I now. Better being... not take this out of the plastic, then, huh? Yeah, I think we, uh, Jason, we have like an icon piece that'll never be got, seen again. I got that one too, so it's a collector's <laughs> item. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I believe <laughs> they got told to uh, change their logo and everything. Yeah, and so so uh, Matt, our producer, sent uh, a little bit of info here on the Mayfair Games lawsuit. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but it says here that uh, TSR has sued Mayfair Games, blah, 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 because of copyright infringement, trademark infringement, unfair competition, etc. cetera. Uh, and this was in 1993, so that was definitely at a low point for TSR. I mean, 93 was really not the time that... You wanted to be involved with anything TSR was doing. They were pretty so, much out of business by then. Yeah, so it sounds like it was one of those kind of things that a failing, you know, bunch of lawyers tried to sue somebody for. So, oh well, Mayfair Games is amazing, and look who's around now. Mayfair Games. TSR is still around. It's just it's called like, Wizard of the Coast. Yeah. Well, anyways, it's <laughs> uh, a whole. Anyway, so game. Glenn, there you go. There's some awesome places that we like. All those modules. Yes, third-party yeah. publishers. All right. Plenty of them out there. Plenty. We have yeah. one voicemail left. All right. Okay. And I'll play the last one. This one is from our, our regular, I'm going to say regular call-in listener now, from Lass. Here we go. Hi, this is Lass, and I have a question for the RFI podcast. In regards monks, and on the forums we were talking about how crap they were. <laughs> But then something came up that maybe has changed my mind. It regards the monk's ability to avoid non-magical missiles and perhaps other attacks. The player's handbook reads, Non-magical missiles, arrows, bolts, bullets, thrown, etc., which were normally hit can be dodged or knocked aside if the monk makes is able to make his or her saving throw against petrification for each such potential hit. In other respects, if a monk makes his saving throw versus an attack form, the monk will sustain no damage from the attack, even if the attack form was a fireball, for instance. Does this mean that the monk can make saving throws versus petrification to avoid damage from even such attacks like melee? 
Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So, hmm. what do you think? Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, first of all, I agree that the monk is a pretty interesting player character. It's one that I don't, for whatever reason, doesn't get, uh, it doesn't just get explored that much by players. I, I've never had a player run a monk in one of my own games. I have. I can't recall it either. Oh, you have? Yeah. It's actually really? not. It's not that easy to be a monk, first of all, because of the requirements. It's mm-hmm. tough to be a monk. Yeah. <laughs> I, but I well, did have they, one player that did they, manage to do it, so. But, I mean, the, the, the idea of being able to avoid all those things it has a lot of uh, basis, or it has its roots in, if not reality, at least in the legends of our world of reality, of what these yeah. kind of martial arts masters can do. Did you guys see the Mythbusters episode where they were trying to figure out if a, uh, a martial artist could actually catch an arrow that was fired at them? No, I wanted to no, see that. No, I didn't see that. Okay, well, I won't give it away, but let me just put it this way. After watching that, I have no trouble allowing the monks to make saving throws against arrows and things like that. Okay, um, don't or, you know, I mean, there, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I think, a really interesting class, and I should probably learn to play one, you know, pretty well. But let's go well, to her exact it, question. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Can they just roll the save on petrification to avoid melee altogether? Is that what she's... I mean, uh, is that what she was asking? Because yeah. that seems... It's not, it's not, uh, no. I don't think you can. Well, uh, let's go back to that, that paragraph here. So non-magical missiles, which would normally hit, can be dodged or knock aside. Yeah. Um, if they make their saving throw against uh, petrification for each potential hit. So, yeah, not melee, but if you're, if you're having... Missile weapons, yeah. Yeah, missile weapons. And that makes sense because, again, I would recommend uh, that we put a link to that Mythbusters episode on the show because I think it's good for people. There was two episodes actually. They had yeah. uh, they had a guy who's a modern day ninja, you know, who's like actually trained for all of that and could literally Oh, he's be not a gamer then. No. <laughs> like an actual <laughs> he thinks he's a ninja. <laughs> right. They right. they had an actual ninja uh on there and they just sat there and started shooting arrows at the guy. <laughs> Wow, okay. And, uh, you know, you see them do this. They get the whole high-speed camera and everything. And uh, like I say, I'm not going to spoil the surprise as to whether or not he was able to do it on the show. But I'm definitely convinced that in an AD&D world of heroes that these monks can do that. There's no trouble understanding that they can, you know, swat down the arrows that are being thrown at them. What they cannot do, we'll go to Mythbusters again and look at all the different times they've had sword myths on Mythbusters. Those are a very different matter. <laughs> so, no, the, the 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 monk cannot save versus petrification to avoid getting hit with a sword. They're right. just going to have it, to go with their armor. And, and it says in and to make sure this is clear about the rule. It's not it, it's non magical missiles. Yeah. So magical crossbow bolts or crossbow bolts that are launched from I think a magical crossbow would count as being magical. Would that be or is it? I'd See, call that DM's discretion as far as that goes. Yeah. If the if the missile Maybe itself it, is magical. If the missile itself is enchanted, and that also means, that's right, your monk cannot dodge the magic missile spell. It always hits. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's, gonna, that's always going to hit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we did, uh, at, at the end of the Jason Con yesterday, we He's had a... monk, a, not a Jedi. Right. <laughs> um, we had a... We had a, a, a 
a death match at the end to figure out to kind of do some tiebreakers on the scores. So I put a whole bunch of people, just gave them all the same characters and put them in an arena and said, okay, one-on-one battle to go through this. And there was a lot of uh, you know missile fire and magic missiles and all that kind of stuff going on. And uh, you could see the players when they were getting in there, especially if it was somebody who had not played a first edition magic user uh, before mm-hmm. that would – because well, these were fighter magic users. That's why you're hearing arrows and magic use, magic missiles. But um, if they hadn't played one before, they'd be like, oh, magic missile, great. That's always going to hit. And, you know, it's only – it's not that much damage. So one D4 plus one. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's not as exciting as you think. The monkey is going to get hit with it. Monkey. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds cool. I did see the episode of question, um, I did see the episode of Chris Angel when Ted Nugent shot an arrow at him. Does that count? <laughs> no, because because <laughs> uh, this is he's not a monk; he's an illusionist. Oh, that's right. And, but it's oh, Uncle Ted. Hey, he's a just... mentalist, not an illusionist. No, that would be Ted. That's a mentalist. But <laughs> no, Ted, Uncle Ted is awesome. Okay, uh, sure. So is All right. uh, we have actually two emails, and Jason, you have the first one. Okay, I. Uh, Let's see. Where did those emails go? I think I just broke Godwin's law, actually, there for a moment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Nice. um, Let's see here. Baron Zemo writes, Cool. I found that a lot of players, including myself, when the GM says, roll me a d20, the player, not the character, knows something's about to happen. It's a tough one to play. The system I've come up with is this. When it comes to saves, as far as surprise spells or a chance to see something, this is what I do. Let's say I have three players, A, B, and C. I will make a small spreadsheet with six rows. I will first roll a D6 in secret. (laughs) This is... (laughs) It sounds like you, Jason. (laughs) I I don't know. I'm already lost. I'm lost. So he's got three players, A, B, and C. Spreadsheet with six rows. He rolls a D6, and that determines where he starts player A. Let's say I roll a one. I then have player A roll a d20 six times. (laughs) I write down each of his or her rolls. Then I I will roll a d6 again to determine where I start player B and so on until all the players have rolled a d20 six times. I repeat this for percentage rolls as well. Oh, I see what he's doing here. Um, I do the secret roll because of all players. I repeat this for percentile rolls. I, I do the secret roll because of all players roll high or low. Let's say roll four. The players will know that they'll all save or die or charmed or whatever. Let's say the players are walking down a passage and must make a save versus a sleep spell. I roll a D6 to see what their saves are going to be. If row four has players all making their saves, they simply walk right on by knowing nothing has happened. Well, he says, right, walk right on by knowing nothing has happened. I think what he means is walk on by not knowing anything has happened. Right. Um, if one player fails his save, he or she will fall to the floor. This is their own rules. I found the system works well. So he's having everybody roll Pre-roll. a whole bunch of saves ahead of time. Yeah, pre-rolling everything. I don't like that. <sighs> I get it. I get, I get it, it you know, too. It's their own rules and all that, but it's a dice. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, um, people like it, it to seems roll. like a lot more work than what it's actually. I mean, if it works for Baron Zemo, okay. Who am I to argue with Baron Zemo? I mean, Marvel's universe villain. Hey, don't come <laughs> and destroy my house. I was um, wondering if anybody caught that. <laughs> I didn't but, catch uh, it, but then again, Comic Con was here this weekend, and I didn't even go, so <gasps> I don't know any of this stuff. Yeah, Baron Zemo. He's like anyway. Yeah. Um, 
That's a different show. I don't know. That's just too much for me. I just trust my players that when I tell them to make the role, they they know the difference between player knowledge and character knowledge. So, you know, that's just how it is. I also use the roll me a d20 sometimes just to mess with them. Yeah, I do that too a lot. Oh, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, that's awesome. Get them paranoid. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you could do, you could take that, that, that method that he's got and just take it to extremes and have a whole... You know, set of pre-rolled randomized numbers, and you hey, just follow down the chart looking for him. Maybe that's yeah. what the DM did in the Jack Chick track. No, wait, they just said he died. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, Blackleaf was dead. Doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> but uh, but I like the uh, I like the inventiveness of it. What I like is the fact that what Baron Zemo came across here was uh, I don't want to get the players paranoid by. Telling them to, you know, not paranoid. I don't want them knowing something that they. Yeah, I mean, we do want the. Don't. Yeah, we and want, I want the them to be their own roles, and I want them to be their own roles. So you know, that's uh, it's it's a pretty clever, inventive way to do it. And I think if All you've right. got that sort of an issue with your players, you know, that you don't want them to know stuff, but you do want them to have roles, kind of a cool way to do it. Our last email uh, from Dave B. He writes, uh, "Would love some commentary on the role play mastery book by Gary Gygax. It's not specifically AD and D first edition." It may as well be as they share the same creator. Hmm. I don't know anything about this book myself. I've heard of it, but I don't have it. I don't well, have you guys. It just so happens it's quite a coincidence because about a week before that, I'm assuming it was the same person who, who put a comment on our site asking about it. About a week before he put that comment on the site, I had just found a paperback copy of it and had bought that. Oh, so oh, I happen cool. to be currently on page 82. I'm about halfway through the book. Excellent. What a quinky-dink. What a quinky-dink. <laughs> we'll keep um, that for a future First of all, library. it's awesome cover art. Some This is the kind of cover art that if if uh, if the um, artwork on TSR stuff was going to keep evolving you know, beyond where it was, instead of heading towards where the artwork went for second edition, which was uh, – this this book came out about two a year or two before second edition did. I would have preferred that they went with stuff like this because it's really just beautiful stuff. Um, very you know, high high fantasy sci-fi kind of uh, early seventies kind of style. But uh, so the the book is really good because it is not specific to D anD D. It's about being a better role playing gamer in general, and it's aimed at. Everybody from beginners to experts, you know, people who have been doing it for a long time. And uh, it's really good to go back and get some of the, uh, you know, just, just hearing directly from Gary Gygax what he thinks it means to play a role-playing game. Um, some of the sections in here, uh, it goes, it starts out with uh, kind of a little bit of background, talks about Tiny or Little Wars, um, you know, H.G. Wells' thing and how gaming evolved. Uh, then he has two ca- ca- chapters, the master player and the master GM. Uh, and then he gets into all these great things, you know, how, how to be in a good group, how to have a good, uh, good time with other people. Uh, one of the quotes, I've started adding little quotes to the bottom of the uh, RFI website, you know, just kind of randomly pulling like, Gary Gygax and Dave Arnison and, and others. And uh, one of the quotes, I, I can't find it in here at this exact moment, but he basically has a moment where he says, you know, if as a DM, if you are, uh, tr- your your job is to have a, a system, a game that makes sense, that goes on, and importantly, that everybody's having fun with. And yeah, you know, he just kind of points out, you know, sometimes you need to you need to uh, cheat 
you need to fudge a roll one way or another to make sure that it actually turns out the way it should for your players. And I like that. Um, he, he gets into things like tactical mastery, how to design your own game, all this stuff. Um, it's written in high Gygaxian prose. <laughs> Yay! You know, you know, you know what I mean by that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really enjoyable read. It's pretty quick. It's about 170 pages or so. Uh, has a, just the appendix themselves are great. If you just go into uh, Appendix D, where he has a list of all of the uh, role-playing games that were currently available in 1987, just to kind of go through that list is a lot of fun. So, yeah, so he wrote this uh, role-playing mastery. He also wrote another one called Master of the Game, which is aimed directly at uh, Game Masters specifically. They're both... Uh, the game, the Master of the Game is a little bit harder to find. I'm looking on Amazon right now, and they start at $30 for a copy of that, but still, I mean, it's not so yeah. bad. Uh, Might be worth Totally it. worth picking up. Absolutely worth cool. picking up. And like I said, I mean, the artwork alone is just beautiful on these things, and it's... It's great to sit down and you know read just Gary Gygax talking one on one to you about you know how to how to how to role play. I love it. Awesome. Well, awesome. cool. Thanks for all the emails and everything. If you want to send in a voicemail and we want to try to keep it at a minute, two zero six two seven nine three two seven two. Nick, be quiet. Again, that is two zero six two seven nine three two seven two. I actually set the voicemail up to make sure you only do a minute now, so. And uh, Jason's uh, voicemail, Google, if you go on the site, you click it, you input your phone number, it calls you right away at your phone, so be prepared to talk. And you can just babble on with that one, but please keep it under, like, a minute or two. <laughs> or you can send us uh, an MP3 directly to rfistaff at gmail.com, or you can voice your opinion directly to Jason himself at jason at rfistaff, no, rfipodcast.com. <laughs> yeah. I got too many things to say. Yes. <laughs> Flame war on Jason. Go. Go. <laughs> As the emails flood in now. I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move over into table manners since we've uh, exhausted everything else. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world. I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. Okay. Uh... This week on Table Manners, because I think we had a couple of requests on this on uh, Magic users and how to play Magic users. Yeah, you know, how they could be how they could be useful. Um, you know, what do you do when your spells run out? You know, a whole bunch of sorts of things. Just how to be a good spell slinging wizard. So throw rocks um, there. End of story. <laughs> throw rocks, magic <laughs> missile. I attack the darkness. Uh, <laughs> All right, Nick, I'm disconnecting you for referencing. Hey, that. hey, hey, hey. <laughs> okay. Um, the threat but, is always uh, there. I don't know. I, I, I put some pretty good th- thought in this. I'm not – it's probably the least experience I've had is with magic user type uh, player characters. Boy, you know, I played a few. Um, I, would, I would say that from my experience uh, – Right. One of the number one things for playing a magic user is spell research. Always do the as much as you can to find new spells as much as possible, so you can fill up your spell book. So yeah, that's one thing. I think the, the major question was: What are those people who are just starting out? They need help playing their magic users at first, second, third level. When you have 
very little spells to do. I mean, most people don't realize that a magic user can stay in the background. They can distract. Right. They can throw. Not joking. You can throw rocks. You can throw right. darts. I think what you can throw three darts around. Well, you know, I I look at magic users as not just like guys who. I mean, obviously they could do those things, but not in. If they're running out of spells and all they got is a dagger or a sling, you know, yeah, they could go back and 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 you know start slinging rocks in the in into combat. But you know, there's other things magic users could do. I mean, as far as there's like research that they could do, like when you're in a town or a city, like historical research. Yeah, but that a, a wizard might be able to do on like certain things. Watching. I think you guys are both just you're you're, you're I'm sorry, I just think you're looking at it really wrong though. As far as you know, well, well and also then please correct they, us, great one. You know, can they throw a dagger? Can they throw a rock? I, the, the, to, this is, I think, one of the toughest things for somebody when they're first coming into first edition is you know realizing that the the, the point of the dungeon uh, or that the the adventuring party as they're going through these things isn't always to say you know. What are we going to fight, and how does everybody take their role in a fight? And you know, let's—you've got the point, and you've got the left, and you're the defender, and you stand in the middle, and you shoot the spells from over here, and let's get the tactics going. Because the magic user is not a combat tool. That was the the point I was trying to make. Yeah, there's other things that they do. The thing is that as you're going down in here, the magic user is this font of knowledge, like you're saying, he's doing the research and all that type of stuff. But right. I think that a good adventure should be, you know, if you're going through Tower of Gygax and you're just trying to, you know, hit, 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 and you're having a great time with that, that's fine. But in a larger campaign, you know, the magic user is one of the most, uh, I think, the most demanding of a good role player. Because if you want to play a magic user, I think the first thing you want to do is decide what are you basing your idea of a wizard or a magic user on? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if you look to fiction, you know, look to literature, are you thinking of somebody like, you know, one of Jack Vance's books? Are you thinking of somebody like, you know, The Face in the Frost, like John Belair's with, with his sort of uh, uh, absent-minded professor type of magic users that are more like bookish uh, academics than they are anything else? And when they actually get out in the world, it's almost comical to see them trying to deal with things. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, are you are you a Gandalf type? Are you, uh, you know, what what is it that makes a uh, magician to you? And once you've decided that, that's I think the most important thing to do first if you're going to play a magic user. Well, yeah, that's I was that's what I was trying to get at is just yeah, beyond you know a guy that's lobbing spells. That's, I mean, like I was like I was saying is, but that goes you know, totally against what you said the last time when I was saying different types of clerics. You said that's not the way to go. Well, they're not clerics. Yeah, not you, the magic user you want to play. So when you pick the type of magic user you want to play, I'm not talking about you know what's what's the role of this character as a game piece on the board. You know, when I hear people say battle cleric or whatever, it sounds to me like they're getting ready to play a board game and they need to assign some attributes. You know, it works great well, in Blood Bowl, but this is Bowl, yeah. AD&D. Yeah, but and they're saying the same thing, too. We are I, I don't think there's character. any right or wrong way to play that way, though. Well, what I'm saying is that you want to think about how that. do you role play, not, not, not is my magic user going to be you know, a lover or a fighter kind of thing. But I'm saying, you know, how do you role play in the sense of like when you create this magic user, what gives him the reason for choosing certain spells? You know, why does he prefer to, 
deal with things that uh, require a lot of preparation, and he doesn't really want to spend his time, you know, flinging off a, a spell really quickly because he'd rather you know, do great things and, and send the others out with well, it. Sure. Or that's that's, that's just... kind of like more on personal taste, though, on what the player oh, totally wants. Totally personal taste. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. the same thing so... as saying a battle cleric or a healing cleric or uh, whatever, a mix. It's the same exact thing. I don't see it as being the same thing at all because it's about saying uh, – it's not about saying what role am I going to play when the combat starts. It's about saying what am I going to be like as a magic user? You know, why, why am I studying magic in the first place? What do I care about? You know, so that when you go to your list of spells and you're trying to, to choose things, it's not about choosing which ones are going to give you the most advantage in a fight. It's about choosing the ones that are the most interesting to you. And I think that's kind of what uh, – you know, the magic user to me is – often defined by their fascination with the actual use of magic. They're, to me, they're the, they're the geeks of the AD&D world. Well, but not all magic users are like that. Some people okay. like to play magic users to where they want to make sure they get spells that are give them the advantage if it comes to combat. I, I don't think there's any right or wrong way on this. Well, so that's kind of true. I mean, there's definitely you've got incredibly powerful stuff when it comes to combat. There's no doubt about it. But you raised a good point at the beginning, which is that your spells run out. You know, at some point you're out of spells. Right. And so what are you then? Well, that's you're a rocker. Well, this is this. Well, (laughs) (laughs) you're you're there. They'll hold the door open. Yeah. No. um, Well, here's a couple of things. And this might go away from some of that. But if you're talking to be if you're in a dungeon environment, you're in a hostile environment. Let's put it that way. Yes. And you're at the point where you have run out of spells. What as a magic user can you do? Well, there's a lot of prep stuff I think you could do beforehand. Um, <laughs> if you're high enough level, if run away. you know, if you're if you're anticipating going into a hostile environment, we're mm-hmm. talking about that. Um, try to get some spell scrolls you know, or try to get as many spell scrolls as you can scribed yes. so you can have those handy you know at least scrolls with several spells yes. on them most so, people forget and about i'm looking at that as like a lot of spells that not aren't necessarily offensive or defensive but are you know are primarily utilitarian and maybe Spells that would help arrange in the escape for the party, things like you know, rope trick or teleport, mass invisibility, you know, stuff like that. So that that might be one way to go. Uh, that's how I try to when I play a magic user. If there's an opportunity to scribe scrolls or to buy scrolls that have magic user spells on them, that would be useful to me. Uh, you know, if we got the coin, where I would like to spend the coin to do it. I mean, now, plus it seems a spell like yourself, of course, is a really, really intensive and long, long process. Right. It could take days and weeks or however long. So that that is true. I um, think, you know, as far as DMing that type of a situation, I would prefer to make it very difficult to get those scrolls because yeah. what I because this kind of goes back to the thing where I don't want a magic user to be some font of power that is right. Uh, right. Because. To me, and again, this is my campaign, this is my way of playing it, not it as right. your mileage may vary, but to me, anything that a magic user can do, a first-level magic user spell is unbelievably impressive, you know? So uh, okay. being able to do those Fear things... my color spray? 
Actually, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about in a situation where, uh, you know, if you saw that happen in the real world, that would be pretty amazing. Admittedly, in an AD&D world, it's a magic-rich uh, environment. People are used to seeing these things. But nonetheless, um, you know, I guess I can just go to sleep as a perfect example of that. But even S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. You know, is good. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, as you get up to some of these things, I think you had a good point. These kind of stuff like uh, rock to mud or uh, teleport um, wall of stone. Mm. Uh, these are things that can be really useful during all those times in a dungeon when you're not in combat. Yeah, because I think or a if good things get really dicey, combat. yeah, or if things get really dicey in combat. You know, playing your way of escape. It seems like, you know, the guy who's going to get the escape route. You know, the it, it's the it generally falls into the, the the lap of the magic user to arrange that sort of thing. At least in my experience, it's like they always look at you if you're playing the the magic user. Okay, what do you got if we're going to get in a tough situation and we got to get out of there fast? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so it, it just seems like it falls into the lap of the magic user in that respect. Another thing that I I've noticed at least when I play a magic user type is they've um, you're going to generally be the one who's going to hold on all the, or most of the wands. Yeah, and yeah. stabs right. that come to the party. So in that respect, that's advantage magic user right there because there's a lot of cool wands. Oh yeah, that a magic user has only access to. And I think so, that's to me that's kind of where the combat side comes in for a magic well, user is with the actual magic devices. Yes, and it can, but there's still other magic devices that are not combat related but are extremely handy. Uh, okay, one that true. comes into point, crystal ball. Who else can use a crystal ball than a magic user? Mm, Came in great yeah, yeah. Uh, a few years ago when uh, we had our characters going into the Against the Giant series of modules. Mm-hmm. They had to find um, uh, the the Hill Giant King where his where he was at inside the um, the fortress. So one of the characters. Uh, uh, we had a cleric magic user in the group. We had a crystal ball. He got it from a previous campaign, from the earlier in the campaign. He was able to have that plus uh, right. a personal item of the fire of the hill giant king. He was able to locate him right there. I was like, okay, this is where he's at. Cool. I'm like, see, that, there you go. Another great, you know, yeah. stuff like that. There are miscellaneous magic items that are really advantageous to a magic user. That's what I like about the addition that shall not be named, Nick. Yeah, <laughs> is that they do implement like magical items for the magic user, or I say at that point it'd be wizard, like the wands or the orbs. You can use those, and it adds like some type of bonus to your accuracy. Or that is one mm-hmm. of the only the one of the only one of the things I like about the edition that shall not be named. Mm-hmm. You'll hear nothing mm-hmm. else from me about it. So I, I mean, there's a lot of other things that you could do with magic users. Like I was saying. You know, if you're in the town or city, you got to do research for something beyond just magic, but finding information out like on a, the lair of some of some lich or something well, like that. I mean, that's I think where a magic user would come in handy to find that sort of information out. Right. Yeah. I mean, anytime you like you say, any anytime you're in uh, 
you are in the adventure, you're going to run into things that have to be read. I mean, just being able to, mm-hmm. to read something magical is, is, is important as it goes There on. you go. And there um, you go. Another thing a magic user can do. Yeah. And I don't just necessarily mean like read magic the spell, but just being able to understand some of the arcane things that are going on. Right. Uh, or, or, I said magical symbols and sigils and things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And also identifying monsters, too. I always wish there was some sort of, I don't know, ability or skill. Like a a Pokedex? Well, no. Like like what Jason's talking about, magic users, for the most part, are, are, are studious people. They study constantly, if not about magic, but about the world around them. You know, yeah. they study They're about all these different... by everything. Yeah, because one thing, if, if magic users, when they're studying magic, they got to know where a lot of these spell components come from. And some of them do come from monsters, I'm sure. So that's studying the other about... thing. Yeah, yeah. The spell components, that's a big deal. Yeah, you know, I think that deal. that's one of my favorite things about uh, magic in the AD&D, at least the first edition AD&D world, is the spell components. Yes. Because it adds a whole other dimension to making sure that you've got the right things with you and that you keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to go find the things that you need? Mm-hmm. You know, it's where you find a lot of the humor, too. You know, yeah, is when you just look at what they choose. Yeah, yeah I, I've no, I, it wasn't until like in the past few years I noticed some of the... Uh, little puns about some of the spell components listed and uh you kind of get a little chortle to yourself but well, one of my one favorites of, yeah there was a uh, in the order of the stick at one point they had uh they'd gotten into town and everybody was going around you know getting the stuff they needed in town so v Varsuvius, their magic user had to go and get some spell components and went into the shop and uh you see somebody coming out and saying hey you know this is great i got I got 500 gold pieces worth of rubies for only 200 gold pieces. What a deal. And the other one's like, yeah, but the spell calls for 500 gold pieces worth. Go back and buy yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. So, one thing, but the, the, I, the I, thing I want to make sure we touch on. Yeah. yeah. Spell casting during combat is very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why oh, yeah. we, when we mentioned, you know, the, the, the magic items rather than the magic spells, that's why I think of magic items as being preferable for mm-hmm. combat. Because spells, a lot of these take uh, casting time that's pretty significant. And even if Mm -hmm. they don't, you cannot be doing anything but concentrating on the spell. You can't even lie prone. Right. So unless you've got a good wall of uh, defense around you, of of fighters and such, to keep the baddies away from you, there's a good chance that that magic user's precious spell just isn't even going to go off. Yeah, or it might, yeah. Even if he doesn't have the time, or if he gets hit, that spell might go fizzle. Jostled. If he even gets jostled. Yeah. If yeah. you bump his arm, it's ruined. Right. You know, <laughs> so. what I was thinking about, and what kind of been one thing about me, I was talking about the monsters. I always wished that there was some sort of mechanism for monster identification, which something would be like unique to maybe to a cleric or a magic user. You know, it's not a bad idea. You could, you know, create a spell. I mean, the dungeon master's guide right. gives you guidelines for researching new spells. I think you should, or, or maybe a skill or something like that. You know, one thing no. I, I think I talked about it before. There's no skill, and I, I think I, and I got the idea from somebody else from Dragon's Foot. They actually use the percentage, uh, the 
list percentage of how rare the creature is, how you can identify the monster. And I think that would be something like a magic user or even maybe a cleric, if if you would use it for that. You could use that percentage roll if, if the magic user can identify that monster for the party. And maybe he might know something about it, you know? Well, I so, had one player in, in, in a campaign who was actually took the... Uh, the initiative to start carrying around a book and she was writing down things about each monster as they killed it. And I, don't, mm. I don't mean the player was, I mean the character was and trying to build sort of a, a book of knowledge about that. Yeah, to, a grimoire about all these monsters. That's cool. There's, so I don't see any reason you couldn't do that. Sure. Yeah, I can't see it either. That'd be really cool. I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just, I, you know, sometimes when you go, have characters go up against a monster they've never seen before, you don't want to tell them exactly what it is. You just kind of want to describe it. That's how I usually do it. Yeah. And the, no one in the party knows what the heck it is, but maybe the magic user might because they're well, studious guys. They read about all this stuff. You might have I a chance to see their going. role in that because magic users are already carrying around one book. Yeah. Who's you know, to say they haven't studied about monsters in the past when they went to magic user school and, you know, learning about <laughs> where they could get the best spell right. components from, from various monsters. So well, anyway, do you want to know what the great Joe DM does? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> the great, us. yes, the great Joe DM starts at a 10% at first level for a chance for a magic user to know any creature, mythological creature or whatever out there that he's not encountered. And then if you've encountered it before but just don't remember, he'll give you another percentage based on that added to it. But that's generally how he did it because he figures that smart. he figures that a magic user reading all the books and studying, they had to have come across something at some that's point. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's almost like I was talking about, like yeah. the uh, the rarity thing. It's, right. Yeah. That's that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, that's the great Because that's something I might implement in my next campaign when I do it. Dun, so. dun, dun. So, um... Anybody else got anything on this? Any other ideas? Well, I, I guess to me, like the, the kind of final word I'd have to say about it is that <laughs> you know, I really I expect to see a magic user as uh, you know somebody who's very bookish. They're, they've got to carry around these spell books, um, which also is a big thing as far as when you're DMing a high level magic user. If that high level magic user claims to have access to all of his or her spells on an adventure uh, throughout, you know. I, the first thing I'd say is, where are you carrying all of these books? Because that's a lot of spell well, books. My bag of holding, yeah. of course. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would work. Now that, and as long as they've you know made something made something for that. But you're talking about a traveling scholar who is either whether happily or unhappily has ended up in the adventuring life, and that's where you know your whole kind of role playing of mm -hmm. things can come in. But you're talking about somebody who is not there to. Uh, be a melee type it's not he's not going to be always trying to mix it up and if you look through you know just just looking through the list of spells you know this is one of the things that struck me the most the first time i encountered some of the later editions of dungeons and dragons was that the spells just were so much more about magic for the sake of magic you know in this mm -hmm. in the first player's handbook it's just opening to a random page i get things like um Leoman's secret chest, pass wall, magic yeah. jar, you know, stuff that's really fascinating and you really could have a lot of fun imagining how it would play out as opposed to just some power that you cast on things that causes yes. damage to other stuff. So that's, to me, why the magic user is so fascinating and, and fun to have in the group and even fun to play because it gives you a chance to explore what it really means to have magic in a world as opposed yeah. to just something that takes more hit points off of somebody else. Woo. Cool. 
Well, yeah, that's that's. I think he hit the nail on the head there, man. So we'll uh, wrap this up here. Anybody else got any ideas out there uh, listening? Uh, go on to rfipodcast.com. Get on the forums. Maybe this is a good forum discussion that we can uh, start up. Let us know what your ideas are about you know, how to play a magic user. And, and email us as well. Let us know. And uh, we'll move on to the next st- segment, which is the Dragon's Horde. Dragon's Horde. This week for the Dragon's Horde, we have got a uh, listener submission, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yay! Uh, let's see, this comes from Losha. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right, I hope. Yes. And uh, sent by email. These are called Left-Handed Dagger Boots. Cool, cool. And I will, uh, I'll read the description here as, as submitted. These mid-calf high boots are suitable for either male or female wearing as they are magical. They will adjust to an appropriate size of the nearest non-evilly aligned left-handed person. So right off the bat, there's something interesting. You have to decide, have you figured out whether your characters are left or right-handed? Left or right-handed. Yeah, I like um, that. Yeah. And uh, I basically, just I, I'm, I'll finish this in a second, but what I took from Top Secret was... You just say whatever the actual player is and go with that. So if you've got an actual left-handed player in your group, there you go. I'm um, a lefty. So you'd get these. <laughs> I, I know. That's I, awesome. I make my players declare it when they make up their character. Either you, left-handed that works or – I make them say left-handed or right-handed. That's good. I, know, I don't really make them do that, so I should start doing that. Mm. Um, they have a dagger hilt built into the outer side of the left boot. This will hold a stiletto or normal dagger. A dirk would be too thick. I don't know what a dirk is. Do you guys know? Large, like a smaller than a short sword, but bigger than a dagger. Okay, because yeah. that's what I usually think of as daggers when I look at the you know weapon of you know, historical weapons. A dagger was more like a bayonet. Yeah, yeah dirk like, is almost like a parrying type weapon only. Mostly. Yeah, that's why, how I've always kind of treated daggers. But okay, so a little dagger, you know, like a knife more. Um, yeah. When the wearer of the boots is surprised from behind, they will automatically draw the dagger and attack the surprising person, gaining the first strike. This will be attacking at a plus two to hit, plus two damage if the dagger is not originally magical, an additional plus one to hit and to damage if it is, for the first strike only. On a natural 19 or 20, we'll add an extra die of maximum damage, in addition to another die of roll damage with set pluses. Wow. The automatic attack does not discriminate from fender or foe, only that they surprise the wearer. <laughs> uh, if the wearer of the boots notices mid-attack that their target is a friend, uh, saving throw versus spell, they will deal half damage unless they roll the natural 19 or 20 when they will make two rolls of the damage die and double the lower of the two. Uh, these boots were created to do good. If a poison dagger is sheathed within these boots or a weapon with evil alignment, they will become ritually unclean and must be blessed, that's as in the cleric spell bless, in order to function again. If this happens when someone is shot in them, they will clench tight, lessening their movement rate to three-fourths of normal rate, and they are unable to run. Yeah. <laughs> All magical abilities and bonuses will only be available for a naturally left-handed character. If a character's entire race is ambidextrous, the bonuses will apply. 
They are resistant to mold, fungus, and other damages that will occur over time and will keep the wearer's feet dry and disease-free in the most putrid of waters. If the wearer is about to perform an evil attack in which they attempt to draw their dagger, the boots will not release the dagger, and if a saving throw versus spell is not met, the dagger's handle breaks. Wow. Um, So there you go. What do you think? So boots of morality, pretty much? Come on. This uh, is this no, is they're... the anti backstabbing thief boots. That's yeah. what this is. <laughs> XP so value. The first thing uh, I want to figure out here. Okay, so they're built into the outer side of the left boot. Right. So okay. if somebody goes to surprise, then you will reach down and pull the dagger from your boot. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you'll go and yeah, basically, this is like a, yeah, they're anti backstabbing thief boots. So anybody, any thief who wants to go or assassin, I think, can backstab as well. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys who try to do those sorts of things, because that's a good line. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that just kind of cued me there, like, mm-hmm, yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's, how, how do you reach your boot that fast? That's awfully far down there. It's magic, dude. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> oh, okay, that's a good answer. It's good magic. Answer. <laughs> magic, dude. I really dig the... Uh, it doesn't matter why they're surprising you. Don't su- hey, don't surprise Dave. He's got the yeah. boots. Yeah. <laughs> Last time we had we had a surprise party for him. We came from behind. <laughs> Somebody got a dagger in their throat. Not good. <laughs> uh, it's so funny because because you know my dad is actually like this. He's an ex marine and he uh, okay. you know uh, all this kind of stuff. And one I just remember one time when I was younger, somebody came up behind him in a bar or his bar actually, and did the whole kind of like, hey, surprise, you know, to somebody. And my dad actually spun around and had a gun in his face, like before anybody knew what was happening. Don't surprise wow. people with things like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't like that either. It, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I'm imagining here. I, I, I really dig that little additional part that anybody's going to get the dagger on them. Um, yeah, I, the left-handed like thing's weird, though. The left-handed thing's kind of strange. I mean, how often have you had a left-handed character in your game well, since you guys track that? Except for me, I'm I am left-handed, uh, right? But I don't really have see, it. See, I think the reason why you made it I uh, made it left-handed is so it wouldn't seem so overpowerful. Because if anybody can use it, then I mean, this is kind of a, a built-in restriction. So this is something that everybody can use. You have to be okay. left-handed. To use it. Okay, and I can understand that if there if that restriction was not in there of some you know or a restriction of some sort. Yeah, I would say, wow, this is way too powerful. Actually, (laughs) going back to your question before, Jason, how can he spin around and grab it so quickly? It's a mid-calf high-thigh boot. Yeah. That's not that low. Holding the dagger up top. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really thinking of some get smart action. (laughs) Oh, okay. No, no, no. No, it's not the... Not down in the heel here. <laughs> I was imagining you'd have to do a little Michael Flatley Lord of the Dance move to get your dagger out. No, no it's no. up top. It's like yeah, it'd be almost like a. It's almost like if he if you wore a, a holster on your waist, it'd probably be about that height. So yeah. Oh, I could see oh, okay. that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that makes more sense because you know if you're actually there, there are gun holsters that are down there so, that are pretty thigh high boots. A guy wearing these thigh high boots, you'd be looking like Sean Connery and Zardoz. Jeez. Ew. Oh, that's an image to burn in your mind for a while. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. would you guys use this in your game? Yeah. I would. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. I like it. 
I like the left-handed thing because it would just be one of those things that if nobody in the party was left-handed, they'd just have to sell them. They'd be really disappointed about that. Yeah. Fact. yeah. Although so. I, I would allow a wish spell to turn the character left-handed so that they could sure, use sure. That, that, that I could see that happening. Sure. Hmm. But, on the type of DM, probably... but I'm the type of DM who would twist a wish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they'd probably wish to be able to use them, and then that's they were thinking they'd like it to be usable by a right-handed character, and then they'd get turned left-handed, and all of the things, all the swords and everything they had made for themselves as a righty would now be not as good because they'd have to, uh, you know, learn all over again and that sort of thing. Actually, that'd be kind of good if your character wished to become left-handed. Maybe you'd make them uh, gain their weapon proficiencies again. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Not a bad idea. That's kind of yes, cool. Yes, very evil. Cool, cool magic item. I would use it, though. Yeah, I, the, the only thing is I don't do the uh, rule that says magical items automatically change size to fit the wearer um, as far yeah. as different races go. I mean, if it's a, if it's a human that needs to wear something made for another human that's fine but that's part of the way that i keep humans as the uh, preferable class in or race in my campaign is to say well you might have created a gnome illusionist but he can't wear any of the stuff that he finds most of the time because it wasn't made for gnomes the only thing i don't like about this magic item is i think the xp value is too high uh yeah twelve thousand five hundred Twelve thousand five hundred. That's more than, you know, it's more than a rod of resurrection, and more than a staff of power. Yeah, uh, I'd probably lower that. You're right. That's I point. would. I would say maybe half that. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Cool. So, I encourage more people to write in and give us magical items like this, because I would love to start like a whole repository for magical items or something. Oh, for sure. Please, people, yeah. send them in. We appreciate RFI staff at gmail.com and, uh, or Jason at RFI podcast.com. <laughs> sure. Hey, why not? Right. Why not? It's an email. address. Like for Jason. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Send us your stuff. We'll talk about it and, uh, we'll head into, uh, the end. It's tough out there. Orcs, goblins, Bad and mad mages. Things that'd eat you is give you the time of day. People that shake your head while looking for a place to put a dagger. Yeah, it's tough. So they're tougher. They're the lumpers. Ready? Sure, sweetie. Go ahead. The case of spare parts, part two. Let me see. Moria, female dwarf, Dinkus's goddaughter, brother ran away from home, father went to look for him, also went missing. Okay. Now, let's see. It turned rainy by the time I got to the Puddleton Constabulary. Dinkus and Byron were gone by the time I got up. I was hoping they took talk stones with them before they left the office. Now I stood in the doorway, took off my cloak, and shook it out, make sure Lucille was peace-bonded, and I walked in. I'd seen this drab room with its drab desk a million times. That included the drab man sitting at the desk, a guy named Bub. I shared well-mets with him and asked if Sergeant Florian was in. He jerked his thumb in the direction of the door on the left in the back. I thanked him and knocked. I heard a grunt of, Come in, from the other side. Hiya, Mac, I said as I took a chair. 
Sergeant Mac Florian had a desk partially covered with wanted bulletins and statements from other cases. The rest of it was covered with a lamp, a tanker, and his elbows. He was a barrel-chested, grim old ex-soldier with a balding head and a black beard. He looked up from the mess on his desk. Boarding lumper, he said with a hint of resignation. What brings you darkening my doorway? Job as usual. Spelunking for gold again? Nope. Missing person. <laughs> That's different for you, he said, reaching for the tankard. He took a big swig, wiped his mouth, and looked at me expectantly. Male dwarf by the name of Angus Durndal. Young pup's sister's looking for him. Yeah, her and us. He let out a quiet burp. The kid's old man came in here a while ago, kicked up a big fuss, threatened to bring us up on charges with the Lord if we didn't find his son. So what did you do? We put out a poster, sent it to the other lawman in the Dales, checked out the boarding house he was rumored to stay at, asked around, nothing came of it. The old man never came back after that. Figured he'd found a boy. Not even close, I said as I put a leg on the desk. His pappy hasn't come home either. You got two missing dwarves. Wonderful, he said, running his hand through his skin. Last thing I need around here is trouble with some dwarven clan. Sounds like you got a full plate, I said as I got up. Where was the kid staying? My cloister's place. I sent a man out there just before you came in. You checked the merchant caravan he was supposed to ship out with? Oh, uh, Spims? Yeah. That was shipped out to the Sword Coast about a fortnight ago. They never heard or seen the kid. Strange that no one's seen these two, especially in a small town like this. Well, it ain't the first time folks have clammed up around here, he muttered as he pulled out a small jug and refilled his tankard. House of Spin pulled some weight around here. Yeah. Well, I got some legwork. Hey, you ain't gonna start any trouble over this, are you? Only if it finds me, or my partners. You let me in if you find anything? Of course, I blurted as I headed to the door. I'm surprised you haven't found a hundred dwarves right here in this room with that swill you're drinking. He gave me a big grin. Get out of here, Lumpa. So I walked out with a smirk on my face. After I got outside, I pulled out a talk stone and tapped it. Byron Craddock. Craddock? Came the voice out of the stone. Hey, it's Lojack. You see Dink today? No, he left before I awoke. Any word at the guild? According to the steward on duty, the caravan shipped out to Daggerfoot and Waterdeep about 14 days ago and has since returned. A small-time mage named uh, Carrion was the one who took the job. According to their records, he's still in Daggerfoot at this time. Any records on him? Not much. Their filing system is in a bit of a mess right now, since they're still recovering from a fire that went through the place a few days ago. I'll let you know if I find anything. Well, don't be too long on it. I need you to go over to Mock Cloister's boarding house and ask about the boy. Max sent a guy over there, but most of those young guys don't know what they ask. Turn on the charm and see what you find out. I heard an audible sigh. Yes, anything else? He asked rather pointedly. Yes, I answered also pointedly. After that, meet me over at the Spim warehouse. Very well, I suppose I could grab a meat pie somewhere as I haven't eaten breakfast. You do that. Lojack out. I tossed the stone in my pouch, adjusted my belt, and headed for the local alehouse. Lunch sounded like a good idea. I met Byron at the entrance to the side street to Spims. As we walked, we compared notes. Mrs. Cloyster seemed more than happy to share information that she'd already gave to the constable. And a little more, Byron said. I figured she's partial to elves. He coughed and continued. 
She does remember a male dwarf matching the description, but he went by the name of Digger Danford, our original. He stayed two nights and then abruptly left the third morning. At least that's what she assumed happened. Look, either he left or he didn't. Which one? Byron stopped. That's the unusual thing. He left without taking his things. No backpack, traveling gear, nothing. His bed hadn't been slept in it. He was nowhere to be found. Did you check his stuff? No, the constable took them to the station. I checked the room for magical residue and got a faint awe of some kind of alteration magic. Teleportation, I said, scratching my head. Quite possibly. I also, he said with a twinkle in his eye, managed to uh, charm something out of Mrs. Cloister. He opened his pouch and took out a small charm. It was half a heart, made of silver on a chain. This was Angus's, I asked. Yes, and I'll wager that Moray has the other half. I gave him a quizzical look. Siblings? Well, I suppose so, Byron stuttered, a bit thrown off at the implication. After all, these could be a token of a family bond of love. I suppose, I said as I pocketed the token and started hitting the spims. Anyway, let's... That's all I got out before I heard a big ruckus down the street coming from the warehouse. Byron and I looked at each other and raced to the entrance. We opened the door to a large open warehouse partially filled with boxes, barrels, and other things. A table with papers and a bell, an office in the back, and a man being flung out of said office. We also heard a familiar voice. We raced to the doorway. We found what looked like a dispatcher's office, but all we really noticed was Dinkus on top of a large orc's chest, threatening him with his hammer. I know they've been here. Now you're gonna tell me what I need to know. The orc turned his head to see us there. Please, get him off me! Before I could say a word, Byron had Dinkus in a hold spell. Then we lifted him off the orc, set him on the floor, and helped the somewhat stunned humanoid to his feet. I'm so sorry about this, I blurted as I helped him up. He's a bit on edge right now. On edge? He yelled. He damn near knocked my head off with that thing. Byron took the spell off Dink, and with a stern look from both of us, he sat in the corner chair and brooded. Byron cast a cantrip which straightened his clothes and sat him down. There, no harm done, the elf uttered. Now we came here for information, Mr. Uh, Brown. Jubilation Brown, he said as he caught his breath. He was portly for an orc, and simply but well-dressed in a shirt with rolled-up sleeves, a waistcoat, and a stringy tie. He glared at us. I already told a constable all I know. We don't have a record of any Angus Durndle. I know, I said as I said. We're just wondering if we could talk to... We heard another crash outside the office in the back, followed by a monstrous roar. A worker ran in, breathless. Mr. Brown, someone dispelled the giant. He's tearing this place apart. Mr. Brown opened a cabinet, pulled out a warhammer, and ran toward the back of the warehouse. We followed him, weapons drawn. Two missing dwarves. A charm. Now a rampaging giant. This keeps getting better. Music for this episode was by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Voices heard in this episode were Glenn Hallstrom and Julie Hoverson. Tune in next time for another episode of The Lumpers. So I hope you guys are enjoying our audio segment. 
The Lumpers. The Lumpers. Yeah, I love these guys. Loving yeah. it. We appreciate all the hard work Glenn is doing with those. Yeah. But I guess that's going to put a wrap on the show tonight, guys. Okay, Ooh. it's been a great week. Yeah. yeah. Really and good. I guess we'll see everybody in two weeks, huh? Yeah. He's got okay. this thing going on, Jason. Was it a uh, – oh, yeah, anniversary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, happy anniversary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're going Congratulations. away. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so there'll be no RFI podcast this upcoming week, but but when we do come back, it'll be the Halloween special. Oh yeah, Ooh, so scary. Uh, we haven't actually worked the whole thing out, so I think we ought to uh, ask our listeners to s- tell us some things they'd like to see on a Halloween yeah, special. Get some ideas. Yeah, things that we've been talking about is uh, Nick, you were going to do something on Cthulhu. Yes, I. Uh, well, one of the other games I like besides AD&D is Call of Cthulhu, and I am going to do a, like a, a short segment on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos and how it ties into AD&D, and uh, might have some pretty, pretty good stuff to bring in there. So, yeah. And some people might already know some of these facts, but I, some other people might not. So it's, I think it's good just to talk about it. It's going to be a, I, a blockbuster show. And, you know, there was a uh, – there was a – a module in Dragon Magazine one Halloween. Awesome. I don't remember what year, oh. but it was it was an adventure that was for kids, and <laughs> uh, it was like a, a haunted house kind of situation for kids. And huh. what I really remember about it is that the next month somebody had written in to Dragon, and he was just so upset that they had put that in there. He didn't feel that it was properly serious enough, and that it huh. was you know all these other kind of things, and. I think we should take a look at that because it was actually really fun. And I know a lot of people actually play with their kids now. And uh, it might be a cool thing for people to go back and check out. It is a very Halloween-themed sort of uh, issue. So maybe we should check that out too. Well, I I definitely know it wouldn't be Halloween without talking about vampires. Oh, yes. I think we should tackle the big bad himself. That's great because I love Robert Pattinson. He's dreamy. No, Jason. Maybe a little bit about the werewolves as well. Yes, we'll talk about the werewolves. That's right. And we'll talk about the very hey. evil, very evil vampire. No. The vampire. I think oh, we should uh, all cut out the bad accent and... <laughs> drink you like a icy oh, food drink box. Maybe we should tackle on the Halloween episode. We'll talk a little bit about Strahd. Excellent. Something maybe, we yeah. haven't talked about yet. All right, Very so let us, let, uh, listeners, let us know what you want to hear. Yes, Jason definitely put up a topic for that so we can get some feedback. Yeah, well, yeah, that's good. a good point. We'll put it in the forums. Uh, so go over to rfipodcast.com and uh, look for the forums in the main navigation and go there and uh, talk about it. Yes, we agree. So I concur. Yes, I concur with Dr. Statement. Uh, keep it original, keep it old school, and uh, good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Bye. Roll for initiative.